Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We are continuing our Luke series. My name is Matt, if you haven't met me before, and I'm one of the pastors here. In this series, we're walking through the Gospel of Luke over the foreseeable future. Uh, I think we use the terms months, years, who knows, last week. Um, And what this is about is we want to be people who are practicing the way of Jesus. And how do we learn how to practice the way of Jesus? By learning about who Jesus is and how he moves in the world. And so we're walking through this gospel to discover more and more about who he is. Last week, we were um, introduced to a specific time and a specific place. That's around the year 27 AD in Israel, which was ruled by Rome. And we learned how in the midst of all this, in the wilderness came this strange man, who is a prophet in the line of Moses and Elijah, who proclaimed a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. This man was named John. And uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright describes him as a puzzling and disturbing phenomenon, which I think is good words to sum him up. And we see John's ministry as a call to reform. He's at the wilderness around Jordan, the place where Israel wandered in the Exodus. And he calls the people to enter into the Jordan waters. These are the same waters Israel walked through as they entered into the promised land. There's an idea of a new exodus at play here. And then John calls the people to baptism, an act that was based on proselyte baptism, which is where Gentiles would, through a ceremony, become Jewish people in the family of God. And John calls the Jewish people to enter into this practice. He's telling the insiders that you need to become like outsiders so you can be part of the people of God and the thing that God's up to. Then we finished talking about how John was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, that he would be the forerunner, the Messiah. And the Messiah would bring salvation to all people. And so that's where we pick up this week, just to give you some context. And now we find about John's message about what it means to prepare the way for Jesus. So as we begin, let's pray. Spirit of living God, we pray that you'd fall fresh on us right now. We thank you for the pictures of your kingdom we've seen already this morning, whether that was the kids dancing up front during worship, whether that's a story of people practicing unity by coming into membership, or the stories of the kids uh, having pictures and wanting to spend more time listening to you. And Jesus, another picture of the kingdom is us wanting to come before you now. We remember Peter's words that only you have the words of eternal life. And so would you come and speak to us this morning? We bless you because you are good. Amen. And so as we begin, we need to remember this thing, which even as I was preparing for this message, it took a while to get this into my head. We need to remember that John is speaking in a specific time and a specific place, but also to a specific people. So while there are uh, transferable messages for us or transferable ideas in this message, it's not directly spoken to us. Instead, this message was written or spoken to first century Jews who are waiting for the coming of the Messiah who they thought would free them from the oppression to the Romans. And this message is about the coming Messiah and what it'll be like when he shows up, which, as we know, he already showed up. And so, while there's stuff we can learn from here, this message was written for them. And so let's hear what, they, what John had to say to them. So we'll start in uh, Luke 3. What we're going to do is we're just going to kind of go through this passage and break it down piece by piece. So it says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the, the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So John is out in the wilderness. And now people have come to hear him and to be baptized by him. And why is that? Well, there's a strangely dressed, puzzling, and disturbing man who's calling them to repent. They know, based on the scripture we read last week out of Isaiah, that that means this man is a prophet. So they go out to hear the words of the prophet. And his words are cutting. He refers to them as a brood of viper. He calls into question uh, their safety as children of Abraham. And then he says they need to produce good fruit or they'll be cut down and thrown into a fire. It's the kind of message you want to hear when the prophet speaks, right? So why would John say this? Well, it's because John is the last of the line of the Old Testament prophets. And as such, he continues and culminates their message. And he speaks in the language of prophets. That of metaphor, imagery, and hyperbole. So let's look at these met the metaphors to begin with. He says they're a brood of vipers. The Greek here is literally, you are children of snakes. This stands in contrast with their central identity claim that to be a, uh, from the line of Israel is to be a child of Abraham. They even come as the promised Abraham who was blessed by God and called to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham, it says, was righteous and walked with God. And as a result, he would always have children that would be around forever. And so there was safety in being a child of Abraham. We will always be around. Before we continue, we just need to pause and define a couple terms, and these are blessing and cursing. These words can mean a variety of different things. Even think about context of sneezing or swearing or anything else. These words of blessing and cursing mean different things to different people. And so to understand what, what the scriptures talk about when they mean these things, we need to go back to the creation story. The world was created good, and then Adam and Eve sinned, and this brought a curse into creation. And to curse is to undo the goodness of the creation through things like sin, brokenness, injustice, and death. And to bless, on the other hand, is to come in line with the goodness of creation, to undo the curse and to restore creation's goodness. Blessing is things like doing good, healing, restoring, living justly, and so on. So we have blessing and we have cursing. So now we go back to the story. John calls these children of Abraham children of snakes. Let's think about that image for a few seconds. Snakes is a loaded term in the Bible. First of all, for people living in the wilderness, perhaps you've been to Medicine Hat before, you know that when a viper is around, it's not a good thing. So for them, this is dangerous. But on top of that, you think to the creation story worldview. The one that tempted Adam and Eve to sin was a snake. A snake was instrumental in bringing into creation the curse. He's the one who began the undoing of creation. To be a child of the snake is to participate in cursing. So he says, you are not descendants of Abraham. You are descendants of snakes. Ouch. You are a descendant of the ultimate spiritual enemy. And then not only that, there's also this prophetic picture that John pulls out because John is just constantly grabbing different images. This is what apocalyptic literature is. It grabs different images from other parts of the Bible and pulls them together to make a picture. So he goes back to Jeremiah 46, where it says, Egypt will hiss like fleeing serpents. 
and the enemy advances in force. They will come against her with axes like men who cut down trees. Here John the Baptist compares the people of Israel to Egypt. Now remember Jewish history. Egypt was their oppressor, the nation that enslaved them that God had to rescue them from in the first place, in the first exodus. And now in the new exodus, he says, you're like Egypt, and people need delivering from you. Not only are you like the ultimate spiritual enemy, you're also like your ultimate historical enemy. This would probably hit pretty hard, wouldn't it? And then we continue in the passage, John says, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Because Abraham's descendants would be blessed forever, there was safety they felt, that God would protect them so his promise to Abraham wouldn't be undone. But John says here, God can make new children for Abraham. Perhaps he's drawing on the words of Isaiah that say this, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness and seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut and to the quarry which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave you birth. For I called him, for when I called him, he was only one man, and I blessed him and made him many. That's Isaiah 51, 1 to 2. Saying, listen, just like God cut you out of the stone of Abraham, he can create new children of Abraham. Or if you know the story, just as God miraculously provided a child named Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, God can miraculously provide new children. So don't just rest on your bloodline, your nationality. Instead, repent and come in line with what it means to be a true child of Abraham, to be a person of blessing for all people. Because a child in the ancient world would look like their parent. To be a child was to be a chip off the old block or an apple that doesn't fall far from the tree. So if, it, if we want to pull up that metaphor, Abraham's a blessing, you'd be a blessing. The snake is a curse, you'd be a curse. This would hit hard when, as a result, John warns them the Messiah will come to them with judgment. We read the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Once again, John is picking up an image from the Old Testament prophets. This one is of a vine or a tree that produces bad fruit and needs to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Isaiah the prophet describes Israel prior to the Exodus with this song which I will not sing to you. Not only because there's no uh, music in the scriptures like for the tune, but also because that would be painful for us all. But I will recite the words. It says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted in it the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I tell you I'm, what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. And I'll command the, the clouds not to rain on it. Now hear this. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. Isaiah describes God as a winemaker. 
who decides to plant a vineyard. So he gets the best region, clears the soil of debris, and gets the best vine and plants it there. When it comes time to harvest good grapes, they're not good. The vine that was growing to produce fruit of righteousness and justice, things of blessing, instead grew bad fruit of bloodshed and distress, things of cursing. So God decides to cut it down and to destroy it, to remove it from the land, which is something that happened in the exile. Or Ezekiel the prophet describes it this way, therefore this is what the sovereign Lord says, is I've given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so I will treat the people living in Jerusalem. The judgment for their unjust and unrighteous lives is that like a tree chopped down to fuel a fire. Now, of course, we know the story. The exile wasn't permanent, was it? It was an act of purification for the land and for the people. It was a judgment on that generation and primarily on the leadership that took them that road, a monarchy that never ruled again. Interestingly, though, they were looking for the Messiah to be a king from the line of David to resurrect this line, to resurrect this monarchy, which, of course, Jesus was from the line of David. And he's a king who reigns forever, just not the king they expected. So John continues his message of the prophets and says once again, the ax is at the tree. Once again, judgment is coming. And once again, it's based on fruit because every tree that does not produce good fruit is going to be cut down. John says that when the Messiah comes, he'll be looking for blessing and not cursing, looking for people walking in justice and righteousness, not bloodshed and distress. So let's go back for a second to, to fall. In fall, we walk through the Proverbs and we talk about how wisdom is how one responds when the light comes on. That when the light of truth shines on you, how to react, or how do you react? That the wisdom is to, when the light comes on, go towards it. And wickedness and foolishness are to run away or fight back. And so John comes as a light of truth here. And the question comes, how will the people respond? Well, we read, what should we do then, the crowd asks. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He says, don't collect any more than you're required to. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't falsely, or accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. Here we have three examples of people running to the light. They've been confronted with the call to repent, and instead of fighting back, which, let's be honest, is shocking based on what they do to Jesus throughout the rest of the book. Instead of fighting back, they run to the light. They allow it to examine them, and they ask great questions, saying, if the axe is at the base of my tree, what should I do? Now, when we think about calls to repent, I mean, think of people with cardboard signs or angry people yelling. Typically, the response is to do something deeply spiritual to pray, to confess, to fast, to ask for forgiveness. And of course, these are all good things. But that's not the call John gives, is it? He doesn't say, go to the temple and offer a sacrifice, or you should put on sackcloth and ash and fast for 40 days, or anything like that. Instead, his answer sounds again a lot like the prophets. To the crowd, to everyday Jews, he just gives a tangible answer of, if you have two shirts, give one away. And if you've got food and someone else doesn't, share it with them. Practice generosity. Give to those in need. The tax collectors who were highly corrupt and part of the first pyramid schemes, uh, 
where they'd go to the Jew, the, they were Jewish and they'd go to the, the Romans and say, hey, we want to help you tax our people. So this is how much you should pay us and we'll give you this. And then they said, okay, now we'll get some money on the side by telling them that the Romans want even more. And so they'd add more and more onto it. Uh, he says to them, he doesn't say to them, okay, quit your jobs, stop working with the Romans or anything like that. Instead, he simply says, be honest and collect what you said you would. Stop collecting extra. Stop unjustly gouging people. To the soldiers who were more than likely Jewish soldiers working in the temple and not Roman soldiers because the call is to be true children of Abraham. John simply says, stop extorting people for money. Or the Greek is literally, stop shaking people down. Stop falsing, falsely accusing people so you can get something from them and be content with your pay. This isn't a case of uh, cost of living increases and trying to keep up with that. Instead, like inflation apparently wasn't a thing back then. Instead, it's simply that like the tax collectors, it comes down to greed and about using your power to unjustly accumulate more for yourselves. And so he says, stop doing that. You don't need to be that kind of people. To their question of how do we get fruit of repentance, John answers, stop growing fruit of injustice. How do we grow fruit of blessing? Stop growing fruit of cursing. In his answer, John comes in line with the prophet Isaiah who says this, is this not the kind of fasting of chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor or wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked to clothe them and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will go quickly or will quickly appear. And then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, I don't want your fasting. I want you to walk in justice, to share your food with the hungry, to house the houseless, to clothe the naked. If you do this, you will be a blessing. John also comes in line with Micah, the prophet who says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with him before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Again, God says, I don't want your sacrifices, not even your best ones. And I certainly don't want you to sacrifice your children. That was a detestable thing that only Moloch wanted. Instead, I want you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with me, your God. To John and to the prophets, true repentance looks a lot like heart change that moves from looking out for yourself and getting whatever you can for your own sake to being humble and merciful and walking in generosity. This is the sign of your love for God, is that you show love for your neighbor, especially your neighbor in need, that you exist towards them to be a blessing and not to be a curse. And this must have been good news from John because we read this response from the crowds. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, the one who is more powerful than I will come, and the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand 
clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. They hear this prophet and they begin to wonder, what if he's the Messiah? What if he's the one that will deliver them? They're waiting, they're, they're hoping for, they're hoping for a deliverer. You wonder if there starts to be murmurings in the crowds or if people start yelling, you should be our king or pledges of loyalty like Gimli saying, on my axe or whatever. Whatever it was, John responds and says, I'm not the one. And in fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals, which is a random thing to say. That is, unless you know, which I only learned this week, that the rabbis consider it too menial of a task for a disciple or a servant even to do. It's too below them to untie the sandals of your master's feet. John is speaking in humility, saying, I'm nothing like him. He's on a whole other level. And then he compares uh, the baptism that he has with water, but says that the Messiah will come with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, once again, this is a prophetic image. The coming of the Holy Spirit was something the prophets spoke about that would come with the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, which wasn't a singular event, but instead a recurring moment where God would step in and bring justice. Whether that was the first Passover, whether that was the exile, whether that was the destruction of the temple, the day of the Lord was a motif for judgment. And the prophet Isaiah looks forward to it and describes it this way. He says, and afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great, or the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. In that day, Joel says, the spirit will be given. And at the same time, there will be judgment by fire. Now this prophecy, like many, uses apocalyptic imagery, metaphors and images describe what it'll be like, not descriptors of what it will be like or what it will look like. Sun turns to darkness, moon turns to blood. This sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? Then again, if you're a first century Jew and the temple is destroyed or you are someone being sent into exile from the promised land, that would also feel like the end of the world, wouldn't it? So yes, there will be one day an ultimate day of the Lord, but there have been many days of the Lord before. There's a ton of debate from scholars. Imagine that. Every time you get a biblical scholar in the, or three biblical scholars in the room, you get about 13 answers. But there's a lot of debate from biblical scholars about what this nature of Holy Spirit and fire truly means. Uh, the two most common ones are, one is about how the spirit comes and acts as tongues of fire and falls on the people. And so spirit coming in spirit and fire is referring to the giving of the spirit. And the other one is because fire is such a prominent view of judgment and purification that is the Holy Spirit and fire. So he's coming with the Holy Spirit and judgment or purification. Now, we don't know exactly, but I, I think we can have both these things in mind and that's okay. Because John picks up one more Old Testament prophetic image and that of judgment, and that's harvest. He describes the scene of a threshing floor. The wheat crop has been harvested, 
and on the ground is both the wheat and the chaff from the harvest. And so the Messiah as a farmer will take a winnowing fork and he'll dig up both and throw the contents of the threshing floor into the air. And the wheat's heavier so it falls back to the ground. But the chaff is lightweight so it gets caught up from the wind and separated from the wheat. And then the chaff is then burned into an, in an unquenchable fire, another image from the prophets, a hyperbole to speak of the power of this fire. The image of harvest is reminiscent of the judgment of Babylon found in Jeremiah where he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, daughter Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time it is trampled. The time of her harvest will soon come. And the image of fire is reminiscent of Malachi's prophecy of both the coming of John and of Jesus afterwards. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, which is something Mark actually adds this on to Isaiah's prophecy from last week. And he says, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the Levites and bring them and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who bring offerings and righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So what's the nature of the fire for Malachi? It's a refiner's fire. This isn't a fire that destroys. This is a fire that purifies. The, the silver goes into the fire and uh, all the evil and brokenness and dross of the curse from the world comes up and what's left behind is righteousness. Fire talks about this in the Old Testament often. It also talks about how God brings Christ-likeness and holiness into our lives. What theologians call sanctification, that is God does his purifying work in us, the effects of the curse are pulled out of us and blessing remains. And so we have to ask the question, are the wheat and chaff two different types of people? Or do they represent the same types of me? Are they two different parts? That as Jesus refines the people, the chaff goes off and the wheat remains. Remember, just in case you've forgotten, all this stuff that we've talked about today is not a picture of something to come, but is a picture of something that already happened. It's about Jesus's ministry that is talked about in the book of Luke. This is what's still to come as we read, not what's still to come in our lives. It's not about end times. It's about how Jesus would walk in the world. The harvest has come and the Messiah will walk among his people. So John's telling them to be ready. And then we read, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed good news to them. I read this, and to be honest, my first thought isn't, man, this is such good news. I bet they were so excited. Judgment doesn't feel like good news, does it? So why then is this described as good news? What if it's simply because the day of the Lord is coming and God is going to step in and actually do something about the curse, is going to do something personally about the brokenness and injustice in the world, the very thing that we clamor for when we experience injustice, going, well, God, why don't you do something with this? And God's saying, I am. God's dealing with the problem personally. He's come and will take on, <clears throat> and while the curse is in them, the brokenness in, is in them, there's steps they can take. They can grow the fruit of repentance and learn to live justly. 
Well, the good news is God has come to judge. So what's the good news for us? Well, we stand on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, don't we? We've seen Jesus' ministry and we've seen how he's walked out his wrath and his judgment, how he dealt with the curse. And first of all, we see him call out injustice and brokenness in the religious leaders who knew better. And as we go through, like, we're going to have to see ourselves in light of them and ask what Jesus is calling out in us. We need to be prepared for Jesus to shine the light on us. Second of all, how did Jesus deal with the curse? Was it by enacting violence on his enemies? No. It was by dying at their hands and forgiving them while he did so. Was it by cursing the curse? No, it was by becoming a curse, taking on all of our sin, violence, injustice, and brokenness on himself, and in the process, taking the power of sin away. The day of the Lord looked like him taking on all the worst of the sin and evil and injustice and dying in our place, but not staying dead, instead rising as a victor, having disarmed evil and injustice. And so for us today, how then do we live? Let's look at the words of Jesus' brother, James. He says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James 3, 14 to 19. The call for us today is the same thing. True repentance doesn't look like having right theology alone, but instead by feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. It's about living just lives. It's about loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And of course, that also is loving God well. Faith or our love for God is displayed in our love for our neighbors. Let me say it again. Faith or our love of God is displayed in our love for our neighbors. Before we finish, there's one last word on John in our passage. We read this. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch uh, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he'd done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So remember, we talked about wisdom is what happens when the light comes on. The wise step into the light, allowing it to change them. The foolish hide from the light and the wicked fight against it. We've seen the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers choose the wise road. But what do we see Herod choose? Well, he follows the path of most of the kings in the Old Testament. He's either hiding from John by locking him up so he doesn't have to hear them, choosing the foolish path, or more than likely and at worst, he fights against wisdom. He locks John up choosing the way of the wicked instead. And we'll see how this plays out in the next couple of months. So we'll pick up John's story later on, and who knows when. Um, but as we do, I have one question for us. And it's a question we need to think about as we continue on. How are we going to respond when the light of truth comes on? 
as we take this next length of time to walk through the gospel of Luke and we're confronted by Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry, there will be things that challenge us. A lot of things. Luke is a challenging book. How will we respond? Will we run? Will we hide? Or will we step in? Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.